Good day, my friends. This is Under Review, the tennis podcast from an insider's perspective. I'm Craig Shapiro, and on the show, I talk with the most interesting voices in the sport. We've got a great show for you today. We're coming to you smack dab in the middle of the biggest tennis event in America, perhaps the world. It's the last of the four majors and the culmination of the tennis season. It's the U.S. Open. And for a guest, we have a man here who knows basically every in and every out of this tournament. He's been working here through sunshine and rain for 39 years, and he's been the chief decision maker for 26 years. And while you've certainly seen his face, you probably have not heard his voice. In the days before a roof, you saw him on Arthur Ashe and Louis Armstrong, walkie-talkie in hand, deciphering the extent of moisture in the air. In 2009, you saw him on Ash trying to calm the storm of emotion coming from Serena Williams as she suggested what she might do with a tennis ball to a Lions judge that called her for a football. And last year, you saw him take the court during the most memorable moment in modern tennis as a torrent of screams fell down upon him from the upper reaches of Arthur Ashe Stadium. Former U.S. Open tournament referee Brian Early is going to tell us how he became the most important rule maker in tennis, what was the most difficult situation he ever had to deal with, and which player is the most congenial. He did all this while following the USTA rules imposed upon him. Don't talk about any current players or situations. We met up with Brian at the Billie Jean King National Tennis Center in Flushing Meadows, New York. We are in the Media Garden. Happens to be one of the great oasises. Did you say Oasi? Oasis. Oh, is that what it is? Oasis. I believe so. It's a great oasis. It's a great oasis from the action. Uh, the U.S. Open is in full effect. Uh, the gentleman you just heard is one of the most. Um, I don't know what to say. I mean, you're the prolific and uh, you're one of the least heard from people, I think, in, in the tennis. I think that's a very good way of putting it. I like to think I'm the most recognized and the least heard. And that, that's, that's Brian Early. Brian Early, the 39 years tournament referee of the U.S. Open. Nope. 26 years as the tournament referee, but 39 years on the staff. So 39 years on staff, 26 years as tournament referee. Yeah. And you are no longer that. I am no longer that. And you say that with a big smile on your oh, face. Yeah. Um, we got to learn all about this. Uh, okay. This is great to have you. Thanks for taking the time. Well, thank you for having me. We do a five-set format. Our first set is called an off-the-court report. Okay. So the U.S. Open ended in a completely unique situation at the end of last year. Did you know that that was going to be your last? Yes, I had announced at the beginning of the tournament that this would be my last. And then what did you do? Did you rent out a nightclub? I mean, that's a long stretch. Uh, no, I, I, I just said goodbye to everybody. I thought it was uh, very nice the way it ended for me, with the exception, of course, of the controversy. Yeah, and, of course, you can't control that. But um, did you take a long vacation? Did you go to Barbados? I went a week later and did another tournament, a smaller tournament. That's kind of part of my retiring is that I've taken on smaller, less stressful tournaments that are fun for me to work. 
as tournament referee? Well, typically it's called the tournament supervisor. It's the same function as the U.S. Open referee has. And we actually introduced ourselves to Brian at the Newport Beach Oracle Challengers, where, where we I was said the hello. Yeah. Or I think I maybe I saw you at the New York Open as well, but at some point we saw you and you were doing that job. Yeah. So you are not really retired. You're just... No, I just cut down. And tell us the tournaments you've done this year as a tournament supervisor. Um, I've done all of the Oracle Series Challengers. So I did Newport Beach and Indian Wells the week before the big tournament. Right. I did that. For and our listeners, there's a challenger that feeds into the main big Indian Wells BNP Paribas Open. And then I, then I took some time and uh, I was the referee uh, in Houston and Atlanta and uh, the ATP 250 in Long Island. Any hot action, any big controversies, any any rain? Did well, you have to come out with a walkie-talkie? Well, fortunately, there was very little rain in, in Atlanta and in Houston, uh, so didn't didn't have a lot of focus on, on me or my position. So you, so you did all those events. What are you doing here? I'm a consultant. If you think about it, I have 26 years and now 39 years of, of, of experience here at this tournament. And I'm handing off to Zern Frimmel, the new referee. And there are things that I know that I didn't write down anywhere. I just kind of, I just kind of know them, and it, it would be unfair to him not to have me here. Right, and really. so I'll be here the first four days, and then I'm sure he'll be fine after that. You're here to show some ropes to the new yeah, guy. Yeah, sure. Um, what's an example of something that you never wrote down that you might uh, um, have how how a player is greeted on the way to Ash Stadium? Just, I just sat down with, with Zern and explained to him how the, the walk to the interview goes and then the walk from the interview to the gate, to the door, into Ash, and when the door's closed, when the door opens, um, how, you, how you respond to the player. Um, uh, make sure you turn your walkie-talkie off because you don't want it going on air. And I mean, there's little things you, you don't think of that, that just happen. Uh, I, I take a quick walk around the court five minutes before the, the, the match is called, just to be sure that when you send the players out, ball kids are in place, line umpires are in place, there's no trash on the court, there's no You're like no, last no looks. Surprise. You're yeah. like last, last looks. looks. Last hey, looks. That's a very good way of putting it. Good day, my friends. I've got two words for you. Stan Smith. That's right, Stan Smith, the living legend, the essence of grace, the namesake of one of the best-selling shoes in the history of shoes, and our latest guest on Under Review. Our episode with Stan Smith is epic. He talks about growing up with Pancho Segura as his coach, boycotting Wimbledon, and building the ATP, and how his iconic shoe came to be. But you won't find this episode on our normal feed, at least not yet. As a thank you to our Patreon subscribers, we're pre-releasing this episode exclusively on our Patreon page. Our patrons are the brick and mortar of the operation. They allow us to continue putting out content in a regular fashion. And while it's certainly an illustrious club, it is not an exclusive club. You can join too. For as little as two bucks a month, you can become part of the Under Review family and get access to never-before-heard material, as well as get entered into monthly giveaways. And for a few dollars more, you can get some truly great perks, like hitting sessions with top pros, Selenko string packages, and a lot more. Just check out patreon.com 
slash underreviewtennis. It's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash underreviewtennis. We really, really appreciate all of your support. Now let's get back to the man behind the walkie-talkie, Brian Early. Let's move into our second set. We call it the On the Court Report. First of all, we were curious, like, how much tennis do you watch? Um, when I'm working, I try to watch as much as I possibly can. Do now, you enjoy watching tennis? Uh, yes, I do, yeah. And, in the, and quite frankly, the tennis has improved so much in the last 40 years that uh, it's, it's breathtaking. I mean, especially the women's game. You know, back in the old days, there were 10 women who played well and uh, the rest were not as competitive. And now, the top 200 are just excellent. Yeah, and the top, and the top 100 are uh, Yeah, and the they can beat thing. each other on any and day, just like the men. Um, what are your impressions been of the new rules? Let's just, I wanna, I'm curious what you think about the shot clock. I think it's excellent. And I think it's completely necessary. Uh, it, it was always difficult to say to a player, I'm gonna give you a, uh, a penalty for being too late. And the player says, well, how, do I, how did I know I was being too slow? And what do you say, because my, my watch says it, or my stopwatch, or my, my PDA? No, now you got something on the court. Is there ever too much rules? Is there such thing? I know you're a stickler for the rules. Yeah. That's your job, is there ever too much? Are there judgment calls? Are you don't? Are you you prefer there never to be a judgment call? You try to minimize them as much as possible. You will always have judgment as part of the uh, process, and you try to minimize that as much as you can. Make as much black and white as you can. What do you think about on-court coaching? Um, I have my. I, I I like the idea. I think it needs to be needs to be refined a bit, but uh, I, how? we need to know, uh, here's a, uh, an example. We, we got a rules of tennis committee uh, concession to allow us to have coaching in the qualifying we saw the last that, three yeah. years. We saw, that. Years. we saw okay. players just walk in over, walk, on walk the changeover, over and right to, to the them. fence okay. and talk to whoever they wanted. Okay. I think that looks that, that looks a little sloppy, but uh, I think it looks a little sloppy. Well, but but at the same time, we we're we're refining these things as we go. Yeah. Um, I think I, I just think that that we can get a little better at it, but uh, but I think eventually, uh, if I were to predict, yeah, that eventually it will be accepted. And 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 just so you know. There, there's some places where a coaching violation could be, could be made. There's rules within rules uh, in that in that trial that we got uh, from the rules of tennis committee. So yeah, I, I, but we can get better at it. But at the same time, I like. Do you think that there should be Hawkeye on clay? No. Do you think there should be Hawkeye for any kind of challenge, not up? Uh, foot fault, double, double hits. Hit. You, yeah. you should be able to Hawkeye all that. Well, you wouldn't. You wouldn't Hawkeye. Well, replay it. it. I mean, replay whatever it. you want to you, say. You could, challenge yeah. it. Yes, you could. You could challenge that. Do you think that there should I be think, that? That's overkill. I think at some point we will get to that. Yeah, I think that that uh, the more readily available that kind of uh, replay is, 
the more uh, I, we've we've had early discussions about it. That doesn't mean it's going to happen here, but uh, we have had some early discussions about it. You know, you, you mentioned a couple of good ones: yeah. foot faults, knot ups, net yeah. t- net touches. Well, I actually um, saw uh, Fergus Murphy last week. He he made such a bad call on uh, Stevie Johnson on a knot up. It was right in front of him, and it was shocking. And it didn't impact the match because Stevie got blown out of the water anyway. But it's something like that should not happen. Yeah. And remember that not up is a very difficult call to make for the chair umpire because he's looking straight down at him. He's too down. If, I think if you wanted to pick out somebody on the court to, to call a not up, it might be the service line umpire or the baseline umpire, which which we can't we can't do. They. And that, the other part of that is the player is supposed to call it on himself, really. No, uh, not really. No. I, I am totally against players having to call their anything on themselves. Not that they don't. Don't get me wrong. And, yeah. And and we're grateful when they do. But yeah. but I think once you, once you start doing that, you open up a, a can of worms that it would be difficult to close. Yeah. Have you observed any controversies this year that piqued your attention or interest? Um, Nick Kyrgios going wild in Rome. Every referee or umpire, when something like that happens, pays very close attention to how it was adjudicated. It's good if you can watch a replay of everything, so you, and, but what, what you can't do is what, what we sometimes see on the TV, and that is they cherry pick just the incident and they have no context for it, for, for how it was handled. And so, what you know, if you're a good umpire or a good referee trying to learn this, you you'll, you'll sit and watch the three games before that and see what's happened coming up, what the conversations were with, between the player and the umpire, and so on. And so you have complete reference uh, when when the when the controversial call is made. I mean, if you if you're not getting your full share of the rules and regulations on this episode, then. I don't know what to say about this. <laughs> Let's go on to the third set. We don't know anything about you. This is the part of our show where we discuss the guest's career. Okay. Where are you from? I'm from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And How did uh, you grow up? Did you grow up in tennis? Uh, no, not really. I, I grew up being interested in tennis, but my high school didn't have courts, didn't have a team. Uh, you know, funny, I go back there now and they had, they've had a very good high school team for the last 20 years. But when I was a student, I would always go to the athletic director and say, hey, when, when are we going to start a team around here? And he said, well, when they be, built some courts. Well, when they did build courts, I was already in college and they remembered that I was interested in tennis in high school. And the, the, the director of Parks and Recreation and the athletic director came to me and said, do you want a summer job running courts? And I said, sure. And then, and Park Recreation at, run in, the courts, uh, Pittsburgh. In uh, Allison Park, Pennsylvania, a little tiny town north of Pittsburgh. And one way I had of, of promoting the facility was to run tournaments. And I knew nothing about running tournaments. And I, and I suddenly I was faced with, well, somebody show up late for a match that I had put out there, and what do I do? And, oh, geez, yeah, it forces Come you to on. open the book. This is how you got started? Yeah. How old were you? Uh, 22. 23, yeah. 23. Yeah. Where'd you go to college? University of Pittsburgh. What'd you study? Uh, music. Pit Panthers. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What, what, are you a musician? 
and I don't consider myself a musician, but I I appreciate music. And, Were you like a music history guy? Uh, I did, yeah, I did uh, history and musicology. Uh, I just I just loved doing it. My my father had been a professor at Pitt, so I got a free free ride, and so I got to choose whatever I wanted, and I wanted a degree, and I thought something fun would be music. I'm a public school product as well, so. So you're running the rec center, the rec court. How many courts was it? Six. And you then, ran tournaments, so yeah. that's how you got into this. Yeah, and then then as I went, people would offer me more and more jobs. I ended up with an 18-court public facility uh, east of Pittsburgh. And it's funny because uh, Bjorn Fratangelo's dad used to play at the courts. Bjorn you know, Fratangelo. Yeah, the courts were five minutes away from where he grew up. Um, continue. Yeah, and I basically had six months to do nothing, and in the winter, and I, you know, I, I helped out at a couple of indoor facilities, but, but for the most part, um, uh, most of the tennis jobs were in Florida, and I didn't really know what to do. But there was a guy down in Florida. You ever heard of Larry Turville? Larry Turville and Armistead Neely started a pro circuit, which was the first developmental professional tennis circuit called. The watch circuit. The watch circuit. Yes. This is inside information. Yeah. We don't know. This, this is this is this is back in the seventies, and they made a deal with the ATP that if some player played all five of these tournaments or six of the tournaments or four of the tournaments, yeah. whatever the number was, yeah. pre previously agreed upon number, the ATP would allocate X number of points to the players based on performance over those five weeks. So you would get. Let's say, let's say, if you won the circuit, you'd get um, the equivalent of what a player would get for winning a twenty-five thousand dollars challenger. Oh, that's cool. And uh, and in 1979, I found out about this, and I said, "Geez, I wonder if I could get involved in that." I called up the, I, I found the name of the of the guy, Larry Turrell, in this case, and he said, "Sure, we'll we'll let you we'll let you come with us." He, he said, "I can get you two hundred dollars a week, but you'll have to pay your own expenses." And I jumped right on it. I, I thought this is a good entree for me, and quite frankly, it, it was the thing that made me start to look at it as a possible career. Hey, can you hit the ball? Do you hit the ball? Uh, at my best, I was a 4-0 player, so yeah, yeah, I hit the ball okay. You, do you play? I mean, do you play a lot of tennis? No, I play, really. play mostly squash these days. You play squash. Yeah, but but that's the way I stay in shape. But, but, but you back, are in the, a, back in the day, I would play five. I played tennis five times a week. Yeah. You did. Yeah, so you yeah. were into it. You were yeah. there. You were living at yeah. the courts. I like to I like to say I was a 5-0 tennis player, but unfortunately, I was a 3-0 athlete. You're a club so, player. So, <laughs> you sound like you're like a decent club player. Yeah, yeah, I was a decent club player. <laughs> so. How do you make the jump from, you know, Pittsburgh's finest yeah. to, to well, the upper I, echelon of this whole thing? When I was working this circuit in Florida, and, uh, and, and quite frankly, the circuit was growing, and um, the Southern Tennis Association, they developed their own circuit, and suddenly officials were needed to help run these, these uh, satellite tournaments. And... I got to be the I got to have the reputation of somebody who could do it, and so I got certified as a referee, and uh, and as a chair umpire, did a little chair umpiring here and there, and uh, basically I never looked back. I did it for three and a half years part time, and uh, it it became clear that 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 there wasn't any full time work in this business, and so I told the USTA that I was 
going to go back and work at clubs in Pittsburgh. And they said, well, and I had a very good boss person I reported to. Again, I wasn't full-time, I was part-time. And she said, if we had a full-time job for you, would you take it? And I said, yeah, I'd take it. And uh, she called me back a couple hours later and she offered me and another guy um, full-time positions as supervisors. And uh, the other guy's name is Gail Bradshaw. Gail Bradshaw, a very uh, well-known name in pro tennis. Uh, Brian Early and Gail Bradshaw, I mean, you, they've basically been in charge of every rain delay in the history of tennis, it almost feels like. Where's Gail Bradshaw today? Yeah, he is uh, finishing his last year as executive vice president of the ATP in charge of rules and regulations. And you guys, I mean, you guys must compare notes all the time. Yeah, uh, not as much as we used to. Not as much as you Cer used to. Certainly not, but always, yes. Always. Yes, we always did. I hope you have a friendly relationship. Well, I was best man at his wedding. You and, were, okay. And so, and okay, so we do have a very friendly relationship. It would be weird if you didn't get along. Yeah, it would be. <laughs> that would be bizarre. And, 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 but, but throughout those early years, we spent more time on the phone talking about cases and decisions than you can possibly oh, imagine. Oh, I can't imagine. Because we were making it up as we went along. There were no real solid rules and there were there were so many holes in the rules of tennis that allowed you to well you know you'd have a, a 15 minute default time but at the same time um, uh, if a guy had a car breakdown or if he had some other legitimate well no you can't have that they're not in professional tennis the problem is is you, it's it's the, you know the thing about pro tennis is you can have you can be a stickler for the rules but the tournament directors and the tournaments and the fans have an obligation and you gotta, you can't blow the tournament sometimes, right? Yeah, you have to take into consideration everybody. Everybody and everything. And then there's places where you even take into consideration the sponsors. I mean, I mean you, everybody sponsors. has a little piece. The television, television. the sponsors. All of those discussions are had in the scheduling room especially. So your first year as tournament referee of the U.S. Open. It was 1993. Mm -hmm. And what had you done for the 13 years prior through the 80s and through the late 70s, been, 80s year? Yeah, uh, deputy referee of the U.S. Open. Well, you were. Yes. Who did you report to then? The referee. The first few years it was Bob Howell. Um, then it was Gail Bradshaw. It was. Who pulled Frank Hammond off the court? Um, That's before that was, your time. Yes, before my time. Mike Blanchard. Yes. And and would that be fair to say that that is sort of like a big learning tool? That was a very big learning tool for everyone. Right. Yes. So what we're talking about is is the famous McEnroe Nastasi match that Frank Hammond, chair umpire, unfortunately, you know, got completely tortured by Nastasi and the crowd and got pulled out of the chair, completely um, a shocking situation that um, will forever go down in the annals of US Open history. Uh, what year was it? Let's say 78. Well, remember too, Frank and, and, and Mike, they didn't have the tools that we have. They didn't, they, don't have, they didn't have rules to back them up. You didn't have cases and decisions. Well, what did you do this here or there? There wasn't even security. Yeah, I mean. It was, the, the crowd was drinking and they were buck wild that night. Nastasi got that crowd going, boy. Yeah. yeah. But now what happens that you learn from those moments? 
to start your job? Like, how does that work? You know, just as you imagine it would, we review tape. I mean, just like every sport, right. we review you roll tape. roll it back. Yeah, you roll it back and you say, okay, how, how was this handled? How, and, and oh yes, by the way, next time it happens, how, how, would, how could we do better? Is there a rule that we need to back, to, to back this up? Is there a rule change we need to make? Yeah. Uh, or, or, or can we apply the current rules we have to this situation and make it better? So, so once you got into the big slot, yeah, what was the first real issue you had to deal with? I, I will tell you that anybody who takes this job thinks to himself, wow, what's going to happen when I'm out there and there's 20,000 people yelling and screaming? And how, am I, how, how is that going to affect me and the decision-making process? And I was shocked that the first time I went out, it didn't feel any different than it had the previous 150 times that I had walked on a court with a chair umpire and two players and a decision that had to be made right there. It's funny how it just kind of disappears because you've been in that situation so many times and, and all of a sudden, just because there's 20,000 people, doesn't, it's not gonna change your decision. And it's not gonna change the way you handle it. And, and, and I, for whatever reason, was concerned. And it all kind of evaporated the first time I walked out. And, I, and, and quite frankly, because of that, probably, I don't remember what the first time was. What's the hardest decision you ever had to make? Here at the US Open? Sure. It's gotta be last year, right? No, it wasn't a decision I made. That was the chair, that's all the, yeah, that was not my decision. No, I don't remember any, any ones that, that, that were. What about when Serena got DQ'd, when you had to DQ Serena right off the court versus Kleisters in the semi? Well, remember that that, that was. Um, Cursing. That was, well, that was uh, just a code violation. And so, yeah, that was very tricky in that. that you coded her, I'm sorry, the chair umpire coded her. Well, the chair umpire had, she had already had a warning in the first set. And then when I came out, and again, I'm not going to go too deeply into it, sure. except to say that that it was very simply that that uh, I went out there because the chair umpire knew that whether she got immediately defaulted or whether she got a a point penalty, the match would be over. How was I going to handle it, and so on. I'm, and again, I'm not going to. I don't want to get you can't too, go too, too. But but it was very clear that there was a code violation there, whether whether we could hear what was being said. Certainly the line umpire didn't hear what was what was said very clearly. Your your last name is Early. Have you ever defaulted anyone for being late? Uh, not at the US Open. Oh, I'm sorry, I, I, did, I, I, I forgot. That's such a part of my job. Uh, Elena Dementieva came late for a doubles match, uh, I want to say 15, 20 years ago, some, somewhere around there, certainly since we've been in, in Ash, because we met her in the parking lot, uh, and she was very distraught. But, uh, you know, that would That's the, the only rules. time. That's the only time for punctuality. And Brian um, Early, only yeah. once yeah. has he taken someone down and, for being late. And, and many times at smaller tournaments, especially at the low-level tournaments where the guys, the guys and the women Quite frankly, aren't aren't accustomed to the responsibilities that they have. They don't have and, the professionalism. Yeah, they don't. They are an artist professional, and it only happens once. <laughs> they learn. They learn real quickly. They learn real quickly. Yeah. And now, and you just tell them and say, "Listen, we had to default you. You're out." Yeah. 
and, and I don't do it quite like that. How do you do a, it? A little, I, I say, you understand your match was called more than 15 minutes ago, and and let them then say, well, they then they would. You typically respond by saying, does that mean I'm defaulted, or or they'll say, well, what does that mean? And then you explain to them means that if it's the first round, we've put in another team or another player in your place and that match has started, or if it's a later round, you say, I had to take you out of the tournament and you know, we'll, we'll discuss what the fines are going to be and, and what other penalties might be levied, but for now, just letting you know your match is not gonna happen. Did you ever do jury duty? Yes, I, I only did it one time that it got all the way through and I could tell that I was drawing on uh, the experience that I had as a, uh, as a, as a referee when I was in the courtroom. I, it's, it's, it's fascinating that you've asked that question because I thought exactly that thing, same thing when I was in the courtroom. Did they make you the head of the jury? No, they didn't. They had, somebody else was appointed foreman and I would have been perfectly happy doing that thing. You would have loved that. Sure. Um, and just so you know, I was the uh, director of the USGA Pro Circuit for 21 years. And we grew from 60 tournaments to 100 and some tournaments now, and uh, I'm very proud of the impact I made on development of professional tennis in that capacity. Um, back in those days, um, before I came up here, the, the player development team and the pro circuit team didn't work together to put tournaments in places and, uh, you know, uh, prize money level, gender, surface, didn't work together to get all that done, and that's one of the reasons I, I I cut back and only did those few tournaments a year because I was so busy with the with the USGA Pro Circuit, and I'm very proud of the. Uh, of that speaks to volumes to your impact. Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah, I, I would say my my impact on on the game uh, is measured as much by Pro Circuit as by officiating. I'll, so, say, I'll say this: you know, we float around this game quite significantly, and I've never once heard anyone say, you know. He's actually not a good guy, Brian Early. He makes terrible decisions. Yeah. Every time you see him, it's raining and, and, and he's the grim reap. No one ever says that. Everyone seems to think you're a hell of a guy. Um, Thank you. Yeah, it seems like. I mean, every time the, the broadcasters are like, well, there's Brian, it looks like it's raining in the forecast. Well, it's, there's Brian, too, somebody went crazy on the court. Remember too that, that, we, that we're ambassadors for the US Open and for the game of tennis too. I mean, it, it, you can't just look like a, a hard guy, you know? You, and, and by the way, how lucky am I to have done this job for 40 years? I you mean, the, you're on the court. You think about it, wow, I, why, why wouldn't I be positive and, and upbeat? And, uh, and, you know, sometimes you have to, to make the best out of a, of a bad situation, of course. I think and, you've had a cool uh, career, man. Yeah, I can't agree with you more. Do you have a go-to outfit you wear for the big matches? Well, at the smaller tournaments I'm working now, there is a uniform. Well, you wear a regular polo. Yeah, and it says USDA, or it says ITF, yeah. or it says ATP. But here you get to floss a little bit. Do you have well, like a blazer that you keep special for the final? Yeah, uh, when, when I was the referee, I, I had 10 suits. I mean that I- 10 I, suits? Yeah. 10 suits? Yeah, and, so, and sometimes I'd bring more. And it's just it's just because there's a chance that it's going to get rainy and all that. You, you don't have time to go to the cleaners. You don't have you time don't have to time. do any, you know. You don't 10 have, it, suits? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and 30 shirts. 30 shirts. Yeah, and at least, at least 
20 times. Well, I got to say, no one ever complained about how you looked either. You always, no one was like, oh my God, Brian, his hair. You always got, you always look about the same. Well, yeah. You're timeless, man. <laughs> Let's move into our fourth set. We call this the 10 ball scramble. It's not a deep dive. It's word association, I'll say it. Okay. You tell me what comes into your mind. Okay. <laughs> Favorite city? Paris. Favorite tournament? The French. And, and that's, again, because I'm, I'm leaving out the US Open. I, I cannot, will not come, and I've been inside it too long, but my favorite Grand Slam is the, is the French, of course, other than the U.S. Open. And, and sorry, just to be clear, you, you've never worked outside of America. You only work in the United States, is that right? I work 25 French Opens. Oh, I, work 20, I have that wrong, I'm sorry. And 20, 25 Wimbledons and five Australian Opens. And I would work as a, what they call a Grand Slam supervisor, who would be um, the arms and legs of the referee at each of those tournaments, and the, the Australian Open referee comes here, the French Open referee is here this week, and he is basically in the field, they are in the field making decisions on behalf of the tournament referee who is Zorn Freeman. Okay, so I had it wrong. You actually have been able to work for other federations at, at just the slams, is that right? And uh, at Davis Cup. Oh, you have, okay, yeah. so you do, you've done some different- Fed Cup. Things. Yep. Always as a referee, supervisor. Yeah, referee or supervisor. Mm -hmm. It's almost like a freelancer. It's like being, it's like working for a different little, TV yes, networks. Uh, it, it's a little more complicated than that, but yes, you could look at it that way. And now I'm a total freelancer. All right, welcome to our yeah. world, my man. Yeah. That's how we do it. Yeah. Um, most congenial player? Kim Kleisters. Most difficult player? I can't answer that. Not even from yesteryear? No. Um, yesteryear. Yeah. No, I can't, can't, can't do it. Can't, can't do it. No, that would be a little, a little uh, outside my comfort zone. Brian Early, to, man, to, he to won't, see. we can't get him to break. Yeah. Biggest mess you've witnessed? Biggest mess? Wow. I mean, did you ever have rain delays for six days straight? You didn't get yeah. a match in? Yeah, that yeah. was the mess. I, I want to say that was, was it 01 maybe? Or, uh, or I mean, 03, one, two, three. The year um, we had- Since The skies opened up, right? Well, well we had, well, not really, it was missed. It was misting all week. Oh, it's and right. I remember Agassi, it was the year that Agassi played um, Taylor Dent and was down a set in the break or something to Taylor, and Taylor came up with a, with a bad back. But, you have to check this. Yeah, but, um, they, that, I don't know that year. And I, I remember they asked um, uh, one, of, one of the Japanese players, I, I think it was Ai Sugiyama, it was a funny, funny um, back and forth in her press conference. She had played in Arizona at the Scottsdale at the Princess uh, early in the year, yeah. WTA event and ended up playing pieces of five matches in one day. They, and she had been sitting around all week not getting a chance to play, and they said to her, would you rather play five matches in one day or one match in five days? And she said, well, remember that when I played five matches in one day, I won all of them. <laughs> I mean, 
that's got to be. Yeah, and, that was that, that drove everybody crazy. People and that was, start losing their minds inside. The, when yeah. you're working an event, the rain. Can what do you really, write about? If you're a media person, what do you write about? Not just that, but the rain can really impact the moods of the workers, the people here. Everybody. It makes you crazy, the weather. It's yeah, wild. It is, it was, it's wild it when you're here. It's like a planet unto yeah. itself. Yep. When the rain comes, boy, woo! Um, are you a proponent of the roofs? Yes, I like the roofs, of course. Even, but, but it affects the difference in the tennis, don't you think? I would say that, that the players will tell you, or the players have told me, that it's not really a big deal in Ash. Now, I've not talked to anybody about, about Armstrong, and uh, I only I wait for people to come to me, things like that. But I was proactive when we first put up the roof in Ash, and they, they, a couple of the players said, hey, quite frankly, that roof is so high, you really don't even notice that it's, th that it's there. And, and there, is water, there is air flowing through there anyway, so you're getting a bit of a breeze whether the roof is open or closed. Seems like they had some humidity issues in there um, when it first started. I don't know, I have not been in there in a little while. Um, uh, we talked about it, but just uh, your on-court coaching. Yeah, I, I think it's, it's eventually going to come, but uh, and, you know, I'm, uh, look, I'd, for me, I, I, I think it's gonna come, so it's, it's an inevitability, but at the same time, it's just okay. You know, it, I don't think it adds as much as, as sometimes people think. It certainly takes a lot of the uh, guesswork out of your officiating. Off-court coaching, the coaching that comes out of the players' boxes. What about it? Your, your, your knee-jerk thought about it. Yeah. Uh, I'm not gonna, not gonna go there right now. Brian Early cannot go there. Um, rain. Rain. I think it's a challenge. I, I, the, only, the only thing it, 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 that I hate is when, when it gets so bad that, that you're having to make decisions about going indoors, and uh, certainly you don't do that here, but at other tournaments, rain, rain can be a real problem. Are we going to see automated lines and chair umpires? Is, is that coming? Not in the foreseeable future, but uh, I would, uh, again, this is, this is the 21st century. If you went to Milan, to the uh, next gen, which I did two years ago, and uh, I didn't feel like it really took much away from, from uh, the play at all. I, don't, I, didn't, I, I didn't think that it, that it uh, Impacted the yeah, game. Impacted the game much at all, yeah. This is our fifth and final set. It's king of the court. If you were king of tennis and you could make a change in the sport with one swing of the racket, no committees, get it done, one second flat, what would it be? I mean, he is thinking yeah. hard. Uh, yeah, on this, this is a, this this is a very a very tough one, a very very tough one. Mm. I mean, Brian, his head looks like it's going to explode. He's thinking yeah. so hard right this now. This is just can't go there. I, I I do have some ideas, and the and the reason I can't is because that would be finding fault and maybe make it harder for me to adjudicate the rules that are on the books as it is. 
you can't give your opinion because then there are people that are going to say, well, you said you on said, other review you said, yeah. that you would do this. You and I did it. So you can't, look, I'm complaining about the fine I got for this, and you're telling, and I know for sure that you're, that, that you're in favor of what I did and, and taking the, the, uh, the make it not, you know, to, to not make it a rules violation anymore. Brian Early, the capo of the chair umpires, the referees, the line judges. Field of play. The field of play cannot answer the king of the court. This is the first time <laughs> in the history of the show that this cannot happen. It's not, it's not because I am without opinion. <laughs> Well, listen, my man, I think that your walkie-talkie should have a spot in the Hall of Fame. Be a picture of you and the walkie-talkie, the famous walkie-talkie. Yeah. I mean, they, they should actually make you a golden walkie-talkie. Oh, that would be good. I would. Uh, that would be very cool. That would be cool. <laughs> Brian Early and the golden walkie-talkie. There you go. Listen, my man, thank you for uh, spending this time Um you are somebody that I think our our listeners our listeners are the connoisseurs. Yeah, they the... think they've wondered about you for a long time. So it okay. was very pleasure. Uh, okay. Thank you very much, and you are released. All right. If you'd like to hear my interview with the one and only Stan Smith, please head on over to our Patreon page and become a patron of Under Review. You can find it at Patreon.com/slash/UnderReviewTennis. P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash underreviewtennis. We really appreciate all your support. Huge thank you to Brian Early. Thank you to the USTA and the folks at the US Open. Big thank you to Lou Scher and Michael Karsh. And thank you to all for listening. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe, rate, and review us. Tell your linesmen, your referees, your Hawkeye operators, and chair umpires be found wherever you get your podcasts we also love hearing from you so if you want a topic explored or a person you want to hear from please let us know our email is info at underreviewtennis.com at ur with cs is our twitter handle underreviewtennis is our instagram and facebook to catch some clips from some of our interviews please check out our youtube page our producer is scott tuft and our music is by brian senti jason Bennett did our mix We'll be back next time with more of the most interesting voices in the sport. Until then, I'm Craig Shapiro, and you are released.